Welcome to the East Traumacast. This program was brought to you by the Educational Resources Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Advancing science, fostering relationships, and building careers. Now, on to the TraumaCast. Before we get started, I'd like to say thank you to Hemodetics for their generous and unrestricted grant for the Educational Resources Committee and TraumaCast. It's Lauren Dudas here with TraumaCast. We are at the 36th Annual East Scientific Assembly. I have Dr. Deb Stein, our outgoing president, here with me right before the gavel exchange. Dr. Stein, how would you say this past year has gone for East? Well, for, it's gone really quickly. Okay. <laughs> and I think that's what everyone will tell you after they do it, do something like this, is that it, it flies by. You can't you blink and it's over. I think the organization actually is really evolving in a very positive direction, and I'm super excited about that. I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to have been part of that, but very much just a small part of that. Um, it's, it's about the organization, and it's about the people who are part of the organization who are kind of pushing it and leading it in a direction where I think we are refocusing on kind of our primary mission, which is obviously care of the injured patient, but also really focusing on this concept of how can we better develop leaders in the field. And that's kind of you know, where we're going in the future. Um, we've, we've done a really good job so far, but I think we are continuing along that path. And we've made some, some tangible successes. We had a, a tactical retreat a couple months ago where we answered some questions that we've been asking for a really long time. What should the focus of the organization be? Who should the target membership be? So I think we're in a good place. I'm very much looking forward to seeing what happens going, going in the future. And I think that for me, as now a mentor member, which is right and also a new thing for me, um, it occurred to me that it is the responsibility of our mentor members to work on behalf of the organization and give back to develop those leaders in trauma care. Mm-hmm. And that's now my responsibility. And that's all the mentor members' responsibility, which is a very different role than we've taken in the past. Mm-hmm. Even though East focuses on the early and mid-career trauma yep. surgeon, really, you know, we can't ignore all the experience that our mentor members will have. Well, and not only that, not only should we, but, but we, we need the mentor members to be the ones who are doing that development of our leaders. Because mm-hmm. who else is going to do it if we don't have those individuals do it? And so I really think that actually the kind of this change in philosophy of from a senior member where you just age out of the organization to a mentor member where a network, you, it, we owe it to this organization. I owe a huge amount to this organization. It's now my responsibility to now pay it back and pay it back to the organization by continuing to participate and continuing to help develop leaders in trauma care. So last year we did this interview by Zoom yep. and I have heard you know, lots of grumblings around the meeting that this meeting finally feels like we're going back to you know, how things used to feel. Yeah. And how can you say that you helped make that happen with this committee meeting? Oh gosh, I, I, I don't know that I did at <laughs> all. I think, that, um, I think that we all emerged from the pandemic. I think the physicality is just so important. I don't think the world's ever gonna go back to the way it was, um, but I think that the concept of being able to be in a room with somebody, it was funny, I, I ran into, a collaborator of mine who I met when I was out at UCSF. We met by a Zoom. I've met him by Zoom probably, or we've had been in calls together probably 50 times. I've never met him in person. And I met him in person for the first time here. So I think 
we'll never go back completely to, to in-person. I don't think it's reasonable. I think the, the concept of like interview season and all of that and people flying all over the country and the disparities that that induces by people who can and can't afford that. But at the same time, there is re something really nice about being able to stand in a room with you so nice. and do yes. this <laughs> rather than by Zoom. So. so tell us for the people who were unable to hear your presidential address, a little bit about updates on the IREP project and where that's Great. come and where it's going. Well, thank you for asking about it. So the IREP project, for those of you who are not familiar with it, it's the Injury Research Engagement Project. And it's basically, we are funded by PCORI to basically work with, we have patient and stakeholder and caregiver uh, co-investigators co on the project. And we are basically working on developing an injury research engagement panel that will be available to help all center researchers do research that is more patient-centered. How we ask the questions, what questions we're asking, what outcome measures we're looking at. And it's really the basic, the foundational element of creating, of having all of trauma research be more patient-centered. Part of this project we were doing, we were doing a little forum with a bunch of patients, and one of them said to me, well, have you ever looked at bankruptcy after injury? And I was like, what are you talking about? And he was like, well, my, yeah, my, my injury left me bankrupt. My kids couldn't, had to get scholarships to go to college. I, and he was like, as an outcome measure, right? Were he, would you or I, as a researcher, ever think about looking at something like bankruptcy? And so I had a bunch of additional stuff in my talk that I wound up not having time for, but patient reported outcomes, pros, right, which are like all the, you know, all the rage now, but are they patient relevant outcomes? Right. Yeah. And so I think we need to be asking that question. So hopefully once we kind of get to this point of the project where we actually have a true panel, we can actually really start asking and answering questions that are meaningful, impactful, and relevant to our patients, because that's what really matters at the end of the day. So I just want to just put a big shout out to, I mean, this is Trauma Survivors Network, the American Trauma Society, my collaborators, Anna Newcomb and Michelle Price, amongst others, Rochelle Dicker, Elliot Hout, Rosemary Kozar. I just really can't thank them all enough because this has been very, this has been a really wonderful collaborative effort across a number of trauma organizations to create this panel that will serve the trauma research community going forward. Anything else you'd want our listeners and 3,000 plus members internationally to hear from you? So please, please, please get involved. The foundational elements of this organization are its members. So when you see the call for volunteers, that's basically your, where you're asking you if you want to join a committee. Everybody who answers the call for volunteers gets on a committee. I get asked, you know, I worry about people think that there's like this cloaking smoke and mirrors about how you, how you get involved and how you become a leader in this organization. There's not. I actually wrote both of my little um, presidential blurbs about this. Get involved, show up, do the work, meet people, network. It's such a great community. And when you do that, then uh, like you, Lauren, you get, you get to be a leader, right? I mean, that's, that's what it's all about. But the community of trauma care providers that are in this organization will, will serve you for the rest of your life as, as long, you know, lifelong friends. And it's just, it's, it's an amazing place to be. So come join us. Well, thank you so much. It's been awesome having you serve as our uh, president and I look forward to what you do as a mentor. Thank you so much. <laughs> hey, this is Jeremy Levin here with Marshall Walls talking about his quick shot at this morning's session. And so uh, Marshall, if you could tell us where you're from and what was your talk about? Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. I'm a fourth-year medical student at Vanderbilt University, and I presented a talk titled Evaluation of Trauma-Focused Medical School Course. What were the major findings from your study? We evaluated student-perceived outcomes of a one-month-long uh, trauma-focused intensive medical school course at our institution. Our educators ran this for seven years. This incorporates things like ATLS and asset exposure, as well as some additional didactic training and additional clinical exposure in the field of trauma and, and trauma rehabilitation. So we surveyed all the students that had taken the course and really found positive results in all the students that had taken it. Big findings we saw were that 
The students felt much more comfortable as residents after having taken things like the ASSET and ATLS courses. They felt that it really prepared them well to care for trauma patients, and they almost universally recommended that other students, even regardless of their future specialty, uh, take the course. So with this, we would uh, recommend that other institutions think about incorporating similar trauma courses at their institutions to try and further expand trauma exposure in medical school. That the other students who were going into different fields found it to be beneficial, I think is... Well, surprising to me, but also not surprising because the things you learn, taking care of critically ill patients, trauma patients, EGS patients, all that stuff is applicable to any situation. And certainly you're going to run into that anywhere. So do you feel like you're going to try to maybe take this and to wherever you go for residency or try to institute it down your career? Yeah, that's a great question. And just, just like you said, you know, we had bonders who had gone on to general surgery residencies all the way to internal medicine residencies. And again, they really felt it was broadly applicable. And so I think that underscores the importance, as you said. So I think as I look at moving on to general surgery residencies and potentially you know, future faculty careers down the road, I'd love to incorporate these ideas and, and just continue to expand trauma education into the, the medical school space. So, All right, yeah. great. Well, uh, thank you for your time. Thank you for your work. And we look forward to hearing more from you. Thanks so much for the opportunity. I'm here with Dr. Williams. She just presented in the Cox Templeton Injury Prevention Paper Competition. Dr. Williams, tell us a little about who you are and Project Inspire. Thank you so much. I'm Ashley Williams. I am a trauma, acute care surgery, and burn surgeon um, at the University of South Alabama in Mobile, Alabama. Project Inspire is really near and dear to my heart. It's a program that we started in 2018, just graduated our most recent class in December of 2022. So it's an ongoing program. The idea behind the program is to pull all of the stakeholders in the community who really see the need for mitigation of gun violence to pull us all to the table to talk about ways and strategies in which can feasibly be implemented to reduce the burden of gun violence in our community. This project was built upon the partnership between the Mobile County Juvenile Court, um, as well as the City of Mobile and the Police Department. The Level 1 Trauma Center has taken the lead and it actually has utilized this space as a venue to be able to administer a comprehensive programs to kids who are at risk. And what I mean by that is kids who have a history uh, or a gun charge, a gun-related offense. Essentially, we provide mentorship and a very robust curriculum around really bringing out the best versions of themselves and helping them to understand that there is a whole world out here and they all have the capabilities to do the right thing, but also to do it well and really become productive members of our community. So how do the participants get involved in the program? So the probation officers who are involved in the gun court select participants. They're all nonviolent first-time gun offenders between the age of 13 and 18, and they do all of the selection process. We have no application process or no say into who they select. We just welcome whoever they send us. So tell us a little bit more about the curriculum that these participants get put through. Sure. So it's a five-pillar core curriculum, which encompasses one, trauma-informed care and confidence building, two, educational and professional development, three, entrepreneurship, four, financial literacy, and five, which I think is the muscle of the program, job-specific, job shadowing, and mentorship. 
And how much time do they put into the program? So for our pilot study, it was a three-week program where they came Monday through Friday from 8 in the morning until 4 in the afternoon, and they really just become a part of the hospital family. Post-pandemic, um, we've kind of changed our, our platform, and it's now semester-based, and we follow the public school calendar. They come every Monday afternoon from 12 to 4 uh, for an entire semester. And the program runs based off of all volunteers to help these kids? Yes, that's right. There are so many people in our community that are passionate and really want to be a part of change. And so it's not hard at all to get people who want to be involved. Certainly everyone is busy. And so I think that is one of the benefits of this program is it, it takes a village. And in this instance, it takes the whole community. So there isn't a large time commitment on any one person, but our kids are able to stand on the shoulders of all of us. One of the audience questions was about your resources. Tell us a little bit about even how the community has come together to provide transportation for these kids. Yes, um, so certainly our biggest barrier and obstacle that we've had to address every single year is transportation. How do we get kids from home to the hospital and back home or now from school to the hospital and to home after that? Um, our first year, the hospital really showed their commitment to this program and administration allowed us to have cab vouchers for the kids. The second year, the police academy stepped up and allowed us to utilize their cadets um, to drive our participants from home into the hospital and back home, which is good because they get to interact in a way that's much different than, than probably their experience. And finally now, and hopefully we don't have to address this year after year, but we've had major buy-in from local churches who have offered to create sort of a coalition and be able to provide transportation for us moving forward. So let's talk about outcomes. You talked a little bit about what people are saying about it, but also where are these kids now? Yes, so we've had a total of nine who graduated from the program. All but one have never had re any reoffense, not even something as simple as a traffic ticket. They've had no further encounters with, with law enforcement. And that's, that's a huge blessing. One of the things that I think about often is what could we have done to not lose that one? And that has gotten us to think about ways that we can continue the program. Certainly we see from all the kids that they enjoy being there. One, because they're in a safe place where they can actually be kids. And two, they see people, several people who care about them and believe in them. And I, I think they long for the, those sorts of positive interactions. And so that has led us to partner with Big Brothers and Big Sisters to be able to continue that, that mentorship on a long-term basis. In terms of where they are, they're all over the place. Um, <laughs> we have had one that is an x-ray tech. He was a fisherman turned x-ray tech for a, a big oil company in the Gulf. We have had several that have gotten their, most have gotten their high school diplomas. Um, one went to the military um, after a job that he got while in our program at O'Reilly Auto Parts. We have one that's in a concrete business with his dad. He went to Job Corps after the program and all he talked about during the program was he wanted to work with his dad. And so seeing that come to fruition is nothing less than amazing. We have one that's in a community college who just graduated. He was one of our youngest studying communications. So they are all over the place doing their thing and we haven't had anything but positive vibes from them.
That's awesome. And you said one of the, the fathers talked about how he hadn't talked to his dad in years and came home from your program and talked to his dad all about his first day. Yes, that's special because, you know, it's everything that they go through, everything that surrounds them can be challenging, you know, especially in, in today's society. And ha having that relationship with family, I think is so important to be able to overcome the things that we're going to face on a daily basis. So to hear that that family had a conversation that, you know, hopefully led to more and more conversations and a greater level of togetherness, I think is wonderful. Years after the program, he was in the first class, I found out from just talking to him that those were his adopted parents. And he had actually reached out to see if I had any idea, ideas about how he could learn who his, his real family was. And so as you begin to peel back the layers from sincerely getting to know them, they really open up to you and, and they want, again, to, you know, be around people who care about them and have those positive experiences. Well, congratulations. I hope your manuscript can literally inspire other communities to Thank do similar programs. Thank you so programs. much. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you. This is Samantha Terrace reporting from East 2023. I'm here at the short course that's entitled Language and Bias Communication Toolkit, East for All. Are we doing it right? I'm here with two of our uh, moderators that helped organize this. I'll let them introduce themselves and tell a little bit of the idea of where this came from and uh, a summary of the first conversations that they had. Hello, my name is Dr. Ronnie Mubang, one of the trauma burn surgeons at Vanderbilt, also currently doing plastic surgery constructive fellowship to at Vanderbilt. And I'm very happy to be part of this discussion on narratives, languages, and biases and uh, in trauma patients. Hello, I'm Malad Bekbahaninia, Assistant Professor of Surgery at the University of South Florida in Tampa. And I too am very excited that we are furthering the conversation and educating all of us. The goal of this whole conversation started when being at Morning Report, you know, you hear certain words being tossed around and being aware that we as humans have implicit biases. So we know that if we have biases, there's certain words that we say that alter narratives. And we've seen in multiple studies that narratives affect patient care, whether directly or indirectly. You know, so this prompted us to sit down to brainstorm some ideas and to figure out ways of how we can better take care of our patients. So could you tell us a little bit some of the implicit biases that we kind of do in this morning report that you kind of used as examples during the, the course today? You know, implicit bias, something that's unconscious, you know, uncontrollable within all of us, it comes out in many different forms. During morning sign out, for example, we, we constantly use words such as, you know, blank year old IV drug user, blank year old, you know, person who was crossing the street at 2 a.m. helping grandma go to church who was shot or somebody who was minding his own business and then, you know, was jumped by those two guys, you know, things of that nature. We use these words to shorten, you know, the, the narrative and try to convey a message, but our fear is that we are conveying more than just facts about the patient. Yes. So, you know, the bottom line too is that when we use these words and we combine them with humor, Right, the downstream effect is that it's the patient that suffers because these words get conveyed to the you know the other colleagues, to the medical students, to the residents, the nurse practitioners, and the nurses on the floor. And guess who suffers? 
it's her patience. So being aware that we too have implicit biases. I, for example, I know I do have implicit biases and I've taken the implicit bias test and I'm aware of it. This is a stepping stone towards putting our feet down and being an army of proper patient care. Could you just elaborate a little bit more on some of the strategies we could do to kind of help change the language that we use in Morning Report or our colleagues? How can we make things better for our patients? First, we can start by creating an umbrella of safety, you know, a room of safety. So in talking to all our colleagues and making everyone aware that this, again, uh, is a place for patient care where we can obviously from that perspective talk freely about patients be emphasizing on just the essential details that are required for the patient management and omitting certain words that might be derogatory or humor that might be associated with poor patient care see being aware and creating a trust environment where we empower our own medical students or our own residents or nurse practitioners as well as other colleagues to speak up when they have a, a perception of biases that we'll be, we're conveying. Our committee has uh, come together and we've developed a set of recommendations for specifically for handouts that we have in the morning report, for example. One, be precise and prioritize clinically relevant information. Don't give anything extraneous. We just need what happened to the patient and when and how. Consider Second, consider the impact of humor used in conversation regarding patients. You know, use humor to levitate, but don't punch down the patient. Third is identification of patients should aim to be person first. Use the person himself. Example, a 50-year-old homeless man should be replaced with 50-year-old man who was struck by a car while crossing the street. He has been living in a shelter recently. Fourth, examine the goal of the information being presented. We just want the facts of the patient, the clinical information about the patient, not anything extra. And then fifth is consider serial evaluation of communication. To jump on Ronnie's point, basically create an environment that is safe, that anyone can speak up, and then reevaluate this on a regular time basis, weekly, biweekly, monthly, as you see fit. So final question to you both. Do you think all you know, general surgery residents, general surgery attendings, medical students should take the implicit bias tests and should they take it multiple times throughout their life? Absolutely. You know, I would say, you know, coming from being a millennial myself when I was in general surgery, I was not aware that I had biases, right? Until now talking about this, being at part of East for All and realizing my own biases. And I bet you that there's so many students out there that are unaware. Implicit biases and biases overall is something we don't talk about in medical school much, right? You spend all this time doing pathology diseases and you get taught by peers and seniors and all this little data that they throw at you at morning report gets translated and gets sunk into your system and you have no idea that you are even biased or you could be in a whole room and making certain jokes and no one thinks it's a bias until an outsider comes in and says huh that's a problem and so the bottom line is yes i do believe so absolutely Uh, information is power you don't know what you don't know so you can't fix what you don't know if it needs fixing so i think doing these sorts of tests will just help you understand where you are who you are and then work on it if you feel like it well thank you guys so much look forward to more work from your committee Thank 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 you thank you thank you this is Lauren Dudas with TraumaCast. I'm here at the East National Meeting, and I have one of our speakers here. We're going to talk about laparoscopic common bile duct exploration. Why don't you introduce yourself? 
Hi, I'm Maggie Bosley. I'm one of the chief surgery residents at Wake Forest, and our presentation was on lap common duct exploration on an acute care surgery service. So tell me, what was the problem that you guys identified, and what was your study looking at to solve? So lap common duct exploration has been talked about for years, and there's plenty of people who have done presentations on it before, and it's been shown that it decreases length of stay and cost and has equal efficacy and safety as ERCP, but it's just not done frequently around the country. And so our group thinks that the key to spreading this technique and utilizing it for the benefit of our patients lies with the acute care surgeons. They're the ones who are on the front lines um, of the ED, benign biliary consults. They already have all the skills necessary and they can perform these day or night. So our group implemented a stepwise technique just using wires and balloon catheters to perform lap common duct exploration on our acute care surgery service. And we compared this experience with our patients who had a, a lap coli with a, either a pre-op or post-op ERCP. And we looked at length of stay and whether or not there were any post-op or procedural complications. We found that our length of stay for our lap common duct exploration patients was almost two days less compared to those that were managed with ERCP. We didn't have any complications in our lap common duct exploration group. And the group that was managed with ERCP only had one episode of post-ERCP pancreatitis. So it is safe and it is effective. We cleared the duct about 70% of the time. And this is in the context of an extreme learning curve. We had, as I mentioned in my presentation, 17 different acute care surgeons who performed this. This includes second year ACS fellows who are also taking primary attending call. And this is a simple technique that can be employed in ACS groups across the country to really move the needle in adoption and lap common duct exploration. What barriers to implementation of a program like this can you foresee and how did you guys try to anticipate that as you were implementing your program? I think one barrier is that when you're in the operating room and asking for supplies, no one knows where to get anything. And so the very first thing that we did was create an OR cart that had all of the supplies in a central location that you could roll to the operating room that was performing the common duct expiration. That way you don't have to think about what you need and it's all right there in the circulator who's not familiar, doesn't have any issue. The second thing is keeping it simple. If you feel like it's a complex intervention and it's new to you and you're later in your career, you might not want to tackle any of this, but we try to really simplify it to things that everyone in this group already knows how to do. They know how to feed a catheter over a wire. They know how to shoot contrast, shoot a cholangiogram. And so keeping it simple and things that have a, a steep learning curve in the sense of once you do a few, the knowledge base and comfort level with this rapidly increases. And so I think eliminating the complexity and eliminating having to think about your supplies really helped us implement this at our institution. And our listeners can look in the show notes for a link to the supply list and a video demonstrating the procedure as they performed it at Wake Forest. One question that was really interesting from the audience was how to counteract the increased length of operative time. Can you comment a little bit about what you found for billing and RVUs for uh, Mm -hmm. surgeons who performed this? Yeah, the standard RVUs for a a simple lap coli or a standard lap coli is 11 RVUs. 
But our institution, once we perform a lap coli with a lap common duct exploration, including getting wire access to the biliary tree and then doing a balloon sphincteroplasty, it is somewhere upwards of 24 RVUs. And if you also require choledocoscopy, it can even get up to close to 30. So adding on a little extra time in the operating room probably also pays dividends if you're getting the patient out of the hospital several days earlier than you would if you're waiting around for an ERCP. This opens up a bed for the hospital system to take care of somebody else. Well, thank you very much. I congratulate you on your great study. And what are your plans next year? Next year, I'll be going to WashU to do a MIS fellowship. Well, congratulations. Thank Thanks you. again. This is Samantha Terrace reporting from East 2023. I'm here with our one of our very own TraumaCast moderators, Jeremy Levin, who had the pleasure of the podium during the potpourri session. Uh, I'm going to let him introduce himself along with his talk and tell a brief synopsis of his study. Hey, so this is Jeremy Levin from IU in Indianapolis, Indiana. And the title of my talk was Characterization of Fatal Blunt Injuries Using Postmortem Computer Tomography, where we looked at blunt decedents who came in after major mechanisms of blunt injury that either died en route or in the trauma bay, and using postmortem CT characterized their injuries to determine uh, what injuries were addressable and what injuries were not addressable and how they may or may not have contributed to patient demise. And what we found was, one, that patients don't die of just hemorrhage, 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 which is certainly something that's been taught to me and something I thought we were going to find in this. They likely die from a multitude of different things. But really, the, the big finding was twofold. One, that a lot of patients come with pneumothoraces, and a significant portion of these patients die with moderate to large pneumothoraces that either were unevacuated, so they got no chest tube, no angiocath, nothing to evacuate them or they got a needle decompression and yet still had a monitor large uh, pneumothorax. Uh, and so we felt, based off that data, every blunt agonal trauma patient coming in deserves mandatory chest decompression with either a tube or a finger. We also found that a majority of patients that had either pre-hospital supraglottic airways, endotracheal tubes, or in trauma bay endotracheal tube placement had a significant rate of airway misplacement, meaning that specifically around the tubes, that the balloon of the tube was somewhere not between the cords and the carina, that it was either mainstem intubation, the balloon may have been above the cords, or it was an esophageal intubation. And that clocked in around, for endotracheal tubes specifically, 11%. And esophageal intubation rate was roughly half of that. So nearly half of the patients that had their airway misplaced in some manner, they had esophageal intubations. And so we felt from that, all blunt agonal patients mandate airway confirmation or reconfirmation with either video laryngoscopy, direct laryngoscopy, or um, same as you pointed out, and title CO2, which is my favorite vital sign. And so, yeah, it was a great study. It was fun to do. And uh, I was very privileged and honored to have the podium to present it. Excellent summary. I think one of the common questions from the audience was a lot about the costs. Just give us how is this funded? How is the consent process obtained? Uh, is there a consent process? And it sounds like there's some potential PI projects at your institution related to this project. Yeah. So the money thing is weird at IU, and I think every center does it differently, but we have a sort of philanthropic fund that is uh, funded through the Department of Radiology that was initially devised for non-accidental trauma in pediatrics, doing postmortem CTs to identify injuries and, and mechanisms of injury. Uh, the, those, some of those funds are also used to supplement the postmortem CTs in adults, and so that's how it's largely funded. 
Uh, I did get a question about do patients get a charge or do the scenes get a charge from the radiologist who reads the scan and puts their interpretation into the chart? And the short answer is yes. Um, but my co-author, Scott Steenberg, the way he described it was it's like the deposit you get placed on your bill from a hotel that you never stay at. And so it shows up on your bill, but then it's taken away. And that's what that philanthropic fund does. We quote unquote charge the decedent, but then the fund kicks in and the charge essentially is erased. And I think that's largely just to show that tracking that we performed a service, a service was done, payment was rendered type thing, even though it's all internal money. Uh, that being said, you know, there's a lot of discussion about, well, how do we make this financially solvent for the institution? Because if you are not at a place that has some funds for this, how do you make this financially solvent? And um, I certainly don't know the answer to that question. I know that the bean counters at, at our hospital are probably very interested in that question or would be interested in a way to make it more financially solvent. So anyone out there that knows, please share. And then for the consent process, you know, these, these CAT scans are done at the discretion of the trauma surgeon. They identify the patients who'd be candidates. And so uh, we try to uh, get consent from the families as they come in to perform these scans for our decedents. Um, and, you know, that doesn't happen, I think, in 100% of cases. And largely, many of these patients are medical examiner cases. And for those, consents are not needed for autopsy. And so these kind of fall into that realm. But we try to get consent uh, from the family. And, and inevitably, we talk with all families. So you know, we discuss these things. One last final question. What's more fun, presenting at East or doing a trauma cast? 100% trauma cast. I blacked out for my, my podium. I don't know. Words came out of my mouth when my brain was turned off. So I'm, I'd rather do a trauma cast. Well, thank you so much. Hey, this is Jeremy Levin with Leah Hofer talking about her most recent presentation at the resident paper competition. And Leah, why don't you tell us the name of your study and what you found? So our study is titled, TXA does not affect levels of TBI-related biomarkers in patients with blunt intracranial hemorrhage. So this is actually a secondary analysis of data that was originally collected during the pre-hospital TXA for TBI trial. So this was a randomized control trial that looked at two different doses of TXA, a 2-gram bolus dose and a 1-gram bolus followed by 1-gram infusion dose over eight hours, uh, compared this to placebo and looked at mortality, but in addition to that, collected a whole range of other like wonderful data on TBI. And one of those were three biomarkers, gliofibrillary acidic protein, ubiquitin C terminal hydrolase L1, uh, and microtubule associated protein too. They're all big words. Yes, lots of big <laughs> words. Luckily they have nice acronyms, GFAP, UCHL1, and MAP2. Biomarkers for TBI, they've been studied for a while and we know there's a lot of association with outcomes, but they're not yeah. something that's really been clinically standardized for use. The only FDA approved assay right now is to determine the need for a CT scan in patients with mild brain injury. So really yeah. not what most trauma surgeons are doing and not necessarily to the point where we need where we need them to be, yeah. I suppose. So we were looking at two things in the study. One was that can we see the mortality difference that was seen in the parent trial reflecting these biomarkers? Because that trial I had mentioned, the pre-hospital TXA for TBI trial, found that that two-gram dose conferred an 8 to 9% survival benefit compared to both placebo arms Oops. and to the other treatment That's arm. That's huge. Yeah, so yeah. we were hoping to see that reflected in these three biomarkers yeah. to kind of 
show that you can identify treatment effect that way. We didn't find that that was the case. However, when we looked at the associations of these biomarkers with mortality, we found that two in particular, GFAP and UCHL1, were both associated higher levels with higher higher risk of mortality. Yeah. Uh, UCHL1, I think, is particularly exciting because it has a more rapid rise and fall. It peaks over about eight hours and, and falls pretty rapidly. If it is able to be clinically standardized and have kind of set ranges and cutoffs, it's something that could potentially be developed into you know a tool for patients in the ICU who have a severe brain injury maybe have to be sedated you can't get a good neurologic exam yeah. if we could find a way for that to to be standardized so that we could use these serial measurements and maybe identify progressing injury yeah. help give families a better idea of what outcomes look like when we're trying to prognosticate and make yeah. decisions with them that that's what i hear is these things hopefully you can use them in real time and then help guide my mind first went to prognostication talk yeah. with family like yeah. we know severe tbi but does it give us some idea of long-term outcomes and i think do you think studies in the future looking at these markers with long-term like you know like go scores and stuff like that is that yeah absolutely. one avenue absolutely or? we actually so part of the the pre-hospital txa for tbi style they did do follow-up after six months so we yeah. have the the goes extended scores and disability rating scores out to six months we haven't kind of done these formal analyses, but I did a quick look at patients whose um, UCHL1 level actually rose, yeah. so had a kind of a delta 24 greater than zero. It's only seven patients, so a really small number. Oh, wow. But yeah. of these seven patients, four of them died by 28 days. Yeah. Of the three that survived, only one had what we would consider a good neurologic outcome. The yeah. other two had severe disabilities based on the GOZI. Yeah. So again, very small group, but very striking results. Signal, something's there. Yeah. yeah. So we're hoping to look more into UCHL1 and and that kind of positive change was an arbitrary cut point. And yeah. what we'll have to do going forward is look at various cut points and compare them for their sensitivity and specificity. But definitely some relationship to those longer-term outcomes. That, yeah. Again, hopefully when we find those those appropriate ranges or levels, that will translate into something that, that can be used clinically. To. From the work you've done, what was the most surprising finding of this paper? And I think it's that, that association yeah. uh, with mortality. It sounds again, it. Especially, yeah. I, I find the UCHL one very interesting because of its quick rise and fall. I think it's potentially a little less TBI specific than GFAP, but especially because so many of our patients do have multi-system injury, as long as we're clear about you know, who the patients are that are included in these trials, what yeah. their other injuries are, what is the population we're actually looking at. I don't think that's necessarily like a total barrier to finding a way to, to, to use this clinically. Great. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for your work, and uh, we look forward to more. Thank you. Hey, this is Jeremy Levin with the TraumaCast, talking with doctors Ashley Meager and Anthony Douglas over their East Multicenter trial on damage control thoracotomy. It was presented today as a quick shot during the assembly. And so, Dr. Douglas, why don't you tell us a bit about what you tried to find in the study and what your findings were? Thanks for having us. My name is Anthony Douglas. I'm from South Bend, Indiana. I'm a general surgery resident at the University of Chicago. The Damage Control Thoracotomy Project came out of my relationship with Dr. Meager. Um, she was my first mentor as a medical student, and we were looking for a project that would be suitable for me as a third-year medical student uh, matriculating to residency. And we thought about you know, the technique of temporizing the abdomen, whether we could apply those same techniques to the chest. Mm -hmm. And so we started out looking at our data at our own institution and then applied for an East Multicenter trial. And what we found was that there is no difference in outcomes for temporizing the chest in terms of the, the different types of closure techniques. Uh, the techniques that we found institutions were using most often was adhesive dressings. Uh, they also were using commercial vacuum devices. 
closing the skin only skin and muscle and then there were some other uh, techniques as well but at the end of the day there's no difference in the choice for temporizing the chest should be done based on the operator's experience your findings well one what's really i guess surprising in a way is just the power of the study you guys accrued many many patients which i can only imagine the undertaking of that of just hurting all those cats to get all those centers to contribute can you all talk about just the process of conducting these multi-center trials and the difficulties or maybe joys of getting all those centers to contribute meaningfully? Yeah, absolutely. We had uh, 26 centers contribute globally, and that was really exciting for us. We had some centers that only contributed a couple of thoracotomy patients, and we had some centers that contributed a high amount. So we also had to do some controlling for uh, institutional variation in that. It has been really exciting to get to know people around the country and the world as far as uh, trauma care and interest in this. I was surprised at how many people we got. We had uh, 934 thoracotomies submitted. 44% of those were damage control thoracotomies. So what we found is that for patients who have a thoracotomy who survived to ICU admission, 44% of ours are damage control thoracotomies. And that's, I think, a really uh, a really important message in this is that we are doing a fair amount of damage control thoracotomies, even though it's not very frequent at each individual institution. Yeah. The likelihood of having a thor- damage control thoracotomy is, is 44% mm-hmm. if you're someone who is, has a trauma that requires a thoracotomy. The important thing we wanted to look at was what were the complications associated with this and what were the different techniques being used. And and that actually grew out of a conversation with my senior partners about whether it was safe to put a commercial vacuum dressing on the chest or not. So one thing is when you have a conversation like this, you can easily grow into a multi-center trial to be careful what you ask for because you may soon have much more data than you ever expected to have. But we're really excited to get this paper written and uh, get it published and and our experience out there for people to know what's safe and what complications to expect in this population. Definitely a great trial, great effort, and we look to hearing more from both of y'all with, I'm sure, further analyses of this large data set and further conclusions to be drawn. Thank Thank you you. much. We're here at the East meeting and I have Dr. Kashawi here who just finished his presentation about CAT scans in the elderly. Dr. Kashawi, why don't you tell us a little bit more about who you are and then what question you were looking into with your study. Wonderful. Thank you. My name is Sammy Kashawi. I'm a third year general surgery resident at University Hospital's Cleveland Medical Center and uh, I just completed a two-year research scholarship at Metro Health Medical Center, also in Cleveland. The crux of my work focused on imaging strategies in the geriatric patient population. Something that I very quickly realized was the clinical decision tools that we routinely use to determine who gets imaged and what gets imaged aren't validated in the elderly, and in fact, just recommend imaging anyone over a certain age, regardless of the clinical picture. The other thing that is important to keep in mind is due to their advanced age, these patient populations have increased comorbid burdens, they uh, have altered physiology, they have limited functional status, so they're already predisposed to poor outcomes. So management of these patients, their initial evaluation uh, is, I think, even more important. And so I think it's necessary, and I'm going to take a detour here and think, um, you know, a couple of years ahead, I think it's important that we eventually develop a 
a clinical decision tool that actually guides imaging for this population specifically. But we're not there yet. And that's kind of the question, one of the questions we're asking. Why aren't we there yet? What is it that we need to know about these patients? And what can we, and what can we do to kind of push forward in that direction? So what did you do in your study? Yeah, so we performed a multi-center trial. It was supported by EAST. We were fortunate enough to have 18 participating sites, 16 of which were level one trauma centers, two of which were level twos. And we collected a total of 5,455 patients, uh, all above the age of 65, who'd sustained blunt trauma, who presented within 24 hours of injury, and who triggered either a full activation or a limited activation or a formal trauma consult. Um, the analysis involved a pretty thorough descriptive analysis because, again, less is known about this population than we think. And oftentimes, elderly adults are kind of bunched into general adults. And so we wanted to uh, learn quite a bit about the injuries that this patient population suffered and you know what their outcomes were like. So quite an exhaustive descriptive analysis, but we also did a bivariate and logistic regression to determine um, what clinical factors uh, increase the risk of a potentially missed injury. So ultimately, again, the question is, what patient population are we dealing with? What are their injuries? What are their outcomes? And then uh, the, I guess the million dollar question is, what are their missed injuries? Do they have, are there, are they, you know, are we missing injuries on these patients? And if so, what clinical characteristics or patient factors predispose these patients to missed injuries? And again, using that information, we might be able to develop a, a, an optimized imaging a clinical decision tool to guide imaging in this population. What we found was, you know, consistent with research that we already know, the most common mechanism of injury uh, is falls, uh, and mainly falls from standing. We also know CT scans are ordered on the majority of patients, but not all. The CT head and the CT cervical spine are the most commonly ordered CT scans. We know that. We also learned that the majority of patients, 93% actually, demonstrated some kind of physical, physical exam finding that might otherwise encourage a provider to obtain a CT scan. The most commonly injured body regions were the head in the upper and lower extremities, actually. And we also found that the CT head and the CTC spine were the most commonly ordered CT scans. Now, when we looked at delayed injury, uh, delayed CT scans, we found that uh, quite a number of patients were being scanned in delayed fashion. And those delayed scans uh, were likely uh, diagnosing new injuries. It's unclear the clinical significance of these injuries, but ultimately we found that 8.8% or almost rounding up, we're dealing with almost 10% of patients had an injury that was not diagnosed on their initial regimen of CT scans. And you found that this did change the level of care that they required in some circumstances? Yeah, absolutely. So those patients that had a delayed injury diagnosis, who had a potentially missed injury, had a higher median ISS. Uh, They were uh, more likely to require critical care. They spent longer times in the hospital. They were less likely to return home and they had a slightly higher mortality risk. And when we looked uh, at our logistic regression, we found that the most at-risk patients of having a potentially missed injury were those who were transfers, being transferred from an outside hospital, those who were trauma consults, and those who didn't speak either English or Spanish. Uh, Interestingly though, uh, partly limited functional status and dementia 
had a slightly protective effect. It turned out that those people had a decreased odds of having potentially missed injury, and that's something worth exploring. So are you, do you think this data is convincing enough to change practice already, or is there more we need to look into first? I would say not yet, in all honesty. I think, if anything, this study was a very, I think it's a hypothesis-generating study, ultimately. But this, I think, lays the groundwork. One of the things that I'm becoming more and more passionate about is that I think it's time that we formally consider the elderly adult population as its own distinct group, much in the way we consider pediatrics their own their own. Uh, you know, patient population. A hard part would be, all right, what age cutoff for all, you know, practical purposes, what age cutoff do you choose? We chose 65 in our study because it's the most commonly used age cutoff and because, you know, the Medicare starts at um, 65. But the next question that that introduces is, do age cutoffs change depending on the disease? Do they cut off, do the change, uh, do the cutoffs change depending on the injury? Or how about their baseline comorbid status. So that's, I think, one of the first hurdles we'd have to kind of address. What defines an elderly patient? Uh, I think the next thing that this study kind of opens up is actually something we are working on, which is the development of a clinical decision tool that is validated in the elderly adult population. And that's, again, something that our group is working on and hopefully something that we can uh, present and and discuss in the future. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got involved uh, with making this an East multi-institutional study? So my mentor, uh, her name is Dr. Vanessa Ho. She's one of the uh, trauma critical care attendings at Metro Health Medical Center. I know that she's already quite heavily involved uh, in East. She's been an invaluable mentor to me. I began my research uh, fellowship slash scholarship really under her wings. She, within my first few days, said, I want you to take a look at this and tell me what you think. Do you think that elderly patients are being imaged properly? And do you think that we're doing a good enough job of catching these injuries? And that, again, that was within the first couple of days of my two-year fellowship. So this is something that's been on my mind. And then, you know, we've been working very diligently on for the last two, two and a half years now. In order to get here, we thought that the best thing to do, the way to make this impactful would be to have volume in terms of number of patients and to have buy-in from other centers. And so that was the idea for making this a multi-center trial. And East, uh, we applied, and their multi-center committee uh, kindly agreed to support us. That's how we're here today. Well, great. Congratulations on a great presentation. I look forward to reading your manuscript and seeing more of what your group has to come up with. Awesome. Thank you so much. Hey, this is Jeremy Levin at the Rural Trauma Innovation Panel. Uh, speaking with several of the speakers, and if you all wouldn't mind introducing yourself and where you're from, and kind of the highlights of what we've spoken about. I'm Ashley Meager. I'm uh, housed at Indiana University, and I spoke about the Indiana Imaging Cloud, which is a web-based cloud image sharing platform utilized to transfer radiologic images across the state and the country. Great. Uh, My name is Avi Bavaraju. I'm at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences in Little Rock. Uh, I talked today about the Arkansas Trauma Communication Center, which is a centralized communication center for the state within the Arkansas trauma system that helps coordinate both scene and interfacility transfers for trauma patients across the state. Hello, I'm Irma Fleming. I am at the University of Utah Burn Center, and I discussed our University of Utah Burn Center MedPIC app which allows our patients and providers to provide photos of injuries, and then we can make transfer recommendations or even consultations or schedule virtual visits with those patients. So it it sounds like from all of y'all's talks that 
a central theme, obviously, with rural trauma is that it's spread out, right? You have to cover a lot of places, some places which may not have a lot of resources. Or they do, and they can do things, but they're transferring to you anyways, and so they have to transmit data in some way. So how do you see as rural trauma evolves, what innovations are you looking towards, or with things you've spoken about, how do you see that advancing in the months, weeks, years down the road? I think that a common thread that definitely came up through the talks and through some of the questions we got is we really need to work to enable policy which makes it easier for us to care for patients across long distances. And so there's definitely a policy arm to this, the care of rural trauma patients. And we need to continue to think outside the box when it comes to trying to keep patients in the right place, whether that's closer to home or in a large trauma center for their injury type. I think one of the key things that's helped us care for patients in rural settings is the technology and infrastructure development that's happened, let's say, over the last 10 years and even the last 20 years. I mean, even compared to when I was in residency 10 years ago, the development of high high bandwidth connections and T1 connections and cloud-based services has really made our ability to implement these tools feasible. I mean, even 10 years ago when I was in residency, trying to think of, you know, transporting images from computer to computer over 300 miles just seemed impossible. But now with the advent of technology and high-speed bandwidth and and Wi-Fi and 5G technology, I mean, it's like second nature to us now. And it's really been the key for us to be able to leverage imaging you know, transfers, for example, or telemedicine, which I think is going to be the real key for moving forward for all, not just trauma and burn patients, but really any sick patient that has an issue at a low resource institution trying to get to a high resource institution. Yeah. I think these infrastructures and this technology is really going to be a key and help us you know, growing and expanding that. Yeah. And for us, I heard a lot of education concerns and with our med app, it allowed us to really talk to these panicked providers as to what they needed, what they needed to learn, understand, and we could kind of tailor that education to them to then empower them to do things in the community. Especially if there's a weather issue, they can't get us, get from Denver down to University of Utah. (laughs) But University of Utah, they can feel empowered to, if they need to do escherotomies there, if they need to do a burn resuscitation, they can do that for the first 72 hours and then get them transferred to us. Yeah, yeah, the prospect of I mean, I'm, I'm sad that we're going into generations of surgeons that don't know the pain of trying to get a CD to load, <laughs> or trying to coordinate care when you're going through a pager to the call center to all that stuff. So I think this is a great panel and clearly something that is going to only become more important over time because rural trauma is not going away. Um, so thank you for all you do. And we're looking forward to hearing more from you. Shout out to the Rural Trauma Committee for putting it together. There you go. Thank all you right. very much. <laughs> thank you. Uh, This is uh, Samantha Terrace. I am at the 2023 East uh, Annual Meeting, and I'm with one of our Quick Shot presenters who just presented Up and Over, Consequences of Raising the U.S.-Mexico Border Height. I'll let him introduce himself and give us a brief summary of his presentation. Yeah, hi. My name is Aaron Marshall. I'm one of the current second-year ACS fellows at UC San Diego. The project that we presented this morning involves the heightening of the U.S.-Mexico border wall and its impact on patients who continue to cross the U.S.-Mexico border illegally by climbing and falling from the wall. Our study was a joint study between UCSD and Scripps Mercy, the two level one trauma centers that service the westernmost 30 miles of the U.S.-Mexico border. 
we have noticed an explosion of trauma admissions related to fall-related injuries after heightening of the U.S.-Mexico border wall, which was completed in 2019. The impacts of this are multifactorial. Patients are more injured. They require more operations as an aggregate, really putting strain on the health systems that take care of these patients. And additionally, these patients represent over $80 million in estimated healthcare costs that were unexpected or unanticipated over the entire study, with over 72 million of those dollars um, in the subgroup of patients after the heightening of the U.S. border wall. Excellent. Could you tell us a little bit more about like the type of injuries that you guys see from these falls? Yeah, sure. It's a lot of what you would expect. Um, certainly your comminuted open um, extremity trauma, open ankle fractures, femur fractures. Um, we've also noticed considerably more axial skeletal trauma, including rib fractures, uh, vertebral compression fractures. And something that the most lethal injuries that we're seeing in these patients are the intracranial traumatic injuries that they're sustaining falling from an increased height. And obviously, since we don't anticipate the height of the wall coming down anytime soon, do you have any potential solutions to this problem? We are currently working on another project, actively interviewing the patients that we admit with fall-related trauma from the border wall to see what interventions would be the most effective and the most useful to, from an injury prevention standpoint. What information can we empower our patients with before they climb the wall that would affect their decision to jump from the wall? Outside of that, advocating for injury prevention strategies in the region and being actively involved in ongoing legislature and discussions regarding the efficacy of the wall, I think would be uh, the most useful way to prevent these injuries. Well, thank you so much. Appreciate talking to us today and enjoyed the presentation immensely. So, hey, this is Jeremy Levin with TraumaCast, and we're talking with Dr. Gabrielle Hatton from the Red Duke Trauma Institute at Herman Memorial in Houston about her paper that she just presented during the resident paper competition. So Dr. Haddon, why don't you tell us what your title of your talk was and what you discussed. Hey, thanks for having me. It was great to present and an honor to be on the podium. We did a study that evaluated a subgroup of a larger study evaluating the outcomes of patients who received component therapy versus whole blood therapy as we implemented our whole blood program at UT Houston. The study ran between 2017 and 2020. We were really interested in the patient population who had both a traumatic brain injury and had hemorrhage necessitating uh, emergent release whole blood or component therapy transfusion. We evaluated overall outcomes, mortality, but also TBI-related mortality, transfusion requirement, And then we looked at disposition of patients when they went home, ventilator days, and some of the other adverse outcomes that we want to keep track of as we change our transfusion protocols. So we did a inverse probability of treatment-weighted analysis to evaluate some of these outcomes because we know that there's selection bias as we implement these protocols. Some of us are very biased and we are grabbing for whole blood and we think that providers on the helicopters and the EMS systems that are bringing our patients also have their own biases. So we adjusted for this in a weighted manner to look at our outcomes. And what we found was an improved mortality, both at the 30-day overall and at the TBI-only related level. So we then looked at the transfusion requirements, 
ventilator days and dispositions, which were pretty much unchanged. We did see a decrease in overall transfusion requirements in the whole blood group that was uh, at 24 hours. However, we looked at the patients in a subset of our whole population, which evaluated the patients who were really bleeding and needed more than four units of blood. This did not show that there was a decreased overall transfusion requirement in our whole blood group. It actually showed that those patients were more likely to need more transfusions. Notably, this was our sickest patient population, many of them coming right from scene on a helicopter, getting whole blood, getting component therapy, very, very sick patients. So while we did see an overall decrease in in 24-hour transfusions, those are driven by the patients who are requiring very few transfusions coming in, having unspecified shock and getting one or two units. Your study, you know, continues to support the use of whole blood. I think especially your center has been a big champion of whole blood and, and has done many of the great studies on it. Where do you see this project taking you in terms of the next study? What's the next thing you can look at for whole blood in these patients? Sure. So the number one thing that I noticed in this study that was a little bit frustrating was we don't have any data on the neurologic outcomes. We tried to give surrogate outcomes such as discharge disposition. These patients going to rehab more often. Mm -hmm. Are they getting off the ventilator quicker? But we didn't see any difference. There is some basic science data that suggests that the neurologic outcomes are improved mm-hmm. with whole blood transfusion, but we don't have the data to back that up. Yeah. So I think that's really our next step to say, well, the most important thing for these TBI patients is their neurologic recovery. So Makes that's sense. what we're gonna <laughs> that's that's what we're going to look at next. The other thing is we need to continue to ask why are we seeing this mortality benefit when we don't have a clear reason for it. There's a number of suggestions, such as the first paper that we saw this morning Mm -hmm. with improvement in endotheliopathy. My hypothesis is that it is very closely related to the coagulopathy correction with whole blood transfusion, which is extremely important in TBI patients. We're using TXA correction of tag values very rapidly in these patients especially. Yeah, I think that seems like the natural evolution. And well, I mean, you're, you're the place to do it. So thank you so much, Dr. Haddon, for a great talk. And uh, we'll look forward to more. Thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you. This is Lauren Dudas. I'm here with Dr. Jason Smith just hours before the gavel exchange. Jason, can you tell us about your East story? Sure. So, you know, I laugh. I wasn't a part of East until I became an attending. So I know a lot of people start in residency and work their way up. And I'd known of East, but I didn't really become a member. And it was interesting because Christine Eames' first year was when I became a member. And uh, I remember meeting her just out of the blue and kind of worked, did some stuff, did a few things in the committees. And then, to be honest with you, after spending about three different committees, they got a call from Kim Davis and said, hey, would you be in charge of research? And it was really cool because uh, I'll be honest, it wasn't something you kind of expected and one thing led to another and you wind up in this, this crazy role, which is unbelievable, to be honest <laughs> with you. Unbelievable that that actually happened. Can you tell me how mentors or people you've met through East have helped you in your career? Sure. I, you know, I will be the honest. The people that I've met through East are really have become my friends. And I tell this to everyone. You know, this is one of the true organizations where you can sit here and you can meet, you know, people that you 
have never seen before. And over the course of a couple years, you actually become really good friends and you share stories of your lives and your families and everything else. And so, you know, when you come to a meeting and you don't know anyone and you're just starting to meet a few people or maybe you met, met someone that you interviewed for fellowship with and now they're at the meeting and you remember, you know, that's how you start to develop this. And now it's when you go to meetings all across the country. It's people that I met right here in this organization that mm-hmm. you become friends with and hang out with. What other committees have you been involved in? Wow. So I did the manuscript review committee was the first one. And then that was with Dr. Wanda Chesney. Then did that again with <laughs> Dr. Fockery. That was a lot of fun. Uh, and then I did the research committee where we were doing like the scholarship evaluations and stuff. And so then after that, I actually was asked to do the whole research multi-center trials division and then went from there to treasurer and the, and the like. What plans do you have for East over the next coming year? Yeah, so I have met with all the committee people, and I think one of the things that I have asked them to do is take a look at the membership. I said everything we do needs to be about what are we giving back to the people that are part of the organization. You know, being a part of a committee is a really a, a cool thing. You volunteer for it, but you get to shape and set agendas and try and do different things. And so I said, hey, everything you do, take a look in. Is this going to produce something tangible or good or beneficial to the, the people of the organization? And the other thing I've told them is I love big, audacious ideas. I said, you know, the best thing about East is we will try crazy stuff. <laughs> uh, and some will, some will do really well and some is going to go by the wayside. But I said those big, crazy ideas are what make this organization special. And doing all of those off-the-wall things that then become, you know, oh, this is just something we do, you know, that's great. I said, but it all starts out with one person going, you know, why can't we do this? Mm-hmm. And I said, that's the, that's the question. That's why can't we do it and, and see where you go from there. Awesome. Any big changes we should anticipate? I don't think there's a lot of huge changes this year. You know, we've got some strategic planning to do. We do that of every three to five years. So some of the strategic planning stuff will come out, but I don't anticipate massive, massive changes coming forward with anything. I think the organization is still um, getting back on its feet after COVID. This is really the first meeting, I think, that's felt like East. Mm-hmm. And I can't tell you how many times people have said that, that this is like, okay, this, this is back to normal. You know, another one or two of these, and then, well, let's see where we're going. How do you manage all the tasks that you are offered because all you know lots of people come to you with an opportunity mm-hmm. but obviously you have to figure out what to do and when is when do you say no or do you say no well i always have to say no to some things despite <laughs> what i want to do i will tell you the biggest thing now these days is if i'm asked to do something it's what am i going to have to give up in order to do it and i think that's you know if you use that as a barometer it's helpful some things are worth giving up to do i mean if you some opportunities come through and it's like okay i'm going to do this but i'm going to have to give up maybe, you know, doing this research project or doing that. That being said, I, nowadays it's as long as I'm not having to give up on going to a lacrosse game or with my kids or going to a cheer competition with them, that's the first big no. If it's like, ah, I'm going to have to miss that, I can't do it. The other thing I say is, it, is it really going to help someone? And is it someone who's asking me to do something that I know that if I ask them to do something, they would be more than willing to help? And there are times where even though it's going to be hard, I'm going to say yes because – Somebody needs you, and you mm-hmm. know that they would be there for you kind of thing. Do your kids know what a big deal you are in the trauma world? <laughs> <laughs> My kids do not know. Uh, the big deal in the trauma world, uh, it's the best part about having kids, is the humbling nature of being a parent. Um, you know, I laugh. My kids are always like, well, Dad, you know, 
if we're not bleeding out of our eyeballs, we're not hurt. Not you just don't care. You don't know anything. And I'm like, no, I I do kind of know a little bit about medicine, guys. This is like my thing. So uh, no, they uh, they're they're wonderful, but they do not care about me being the president of East or anything else. <laughs> That's right. Anything else you want any of our three thousand plus members? Yeah. To know. So I think that for us, really. This organization is special. If you if you haven't seen it or felt it really over the past few years, what we have in this organization is not replicated anywhere else. There's so much camaraderie, and I use a sense of family. I said much more than many other organizations that you belong to in surgery. If you look around, the friends and the people you meet, there's a sense of family in this organization that's not there. Be a part of that. And, and, you know, when you see the call for volunteers, fill out the call for volunteers. You know, you will be engaged with so many motivated, smart, funny, awesome people. Sorry, Christine. Use the word awesome. Christine hates the word awesome, by the way. <laughs> um, uh, that it's important that you feel like that and feel grounded in that. And I think if you take that into consideration, become a part of this place, um, the sky is the limit because there's so much you can learn and do here. And it is a great place to start a career when you're coming into trauma surgery. So for all of our listeners, a call for volunteers is usually at the end of August and with the deadline sometime in the beginning of September. If you miss it, you have to wait a whole nother year to get involved in some of our committees. So make sure you check that out on the website so you don't miss that opportunity. And thank you so much, Jason, for Absolutely. talking with me. We're very excited to see what 2023 brings. As am I. Thank you very much. That wraps up another episode of TraumaCast brought to you by the Educational Resources Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Visit east.org to check out all the great educational and career development resources we have to offer and make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs or interviews. If you're searching for cutting-edge science, professional education, networking, and career development, Remember, all you need to do is look to the East.